Sweet. How are you guys doing? How are you guys doing? It's good to see you. It's Sunday morning. Uh, excited to be with you guys and really excited for what God has for us in his word. Um, I don't know about you because um, you are on the receiving end, but I really enjoyed uh, just teaching and studying through uh, the first chapter of Nehemiah last week. And so we're going to be continuing on uh, in our series on the book of Nehemiah. And the title of today's message is God's Good Hand. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8. And remember, if you don't know where Nehemiah is, it is located close to the middle of the Bible. And so one of the easiest ways to get to Nehemiah is to turn in the middle of your Bible and you'll hit Psalms and then just go to the left. And it's about three books uh, from Psalms on the left hand side. Or remember, you can always look in your table of contents, which is very helpful. But Nehemiah isn't one of those books uh, that are commonly taught on. Uh, but the truths that are found in Nehemiah are rich for our learning. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen a child uh, learn to ride their bike? Uh, at times, it is comical, uh, and also at other times, it is encouraging. Uh, maybe uh, you have seen something along the lines of this. My clicker's not working. Hmm. There you go. Perfect. Uh, right? A, a child learning to ride their bike. Typically, they don't do it on their own. Unless, did anyone learn to ride their bike on their own? Yeah. All right. That's, that's impressive. Very, very good. But oftentimes you need some help, right? Maybe you need some training wheels and you, or you need mom and dad. And right, typically the mom or dad has uh, their, their, their hand on the child's seat the whole time, right? And if you've ever seen it take place, normally that child will not want the parents to back away, right? The dad will be like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back away now. And the child's like, no, no, I can't do it, right? And, and they're just like, want want the parent to stay by their side and will begin to freak out. And, uh, and, they, and they want them to keep their hand with them the whole time. Because the child knows as soon as the parents step away, they are on their own. And for that child at the time, it's a terrifying reality. Now, for the parent teaching the child, right, the goal is to help the child come to a place of independence, right? Where they can ride on their own. And that's the goal for a parent-to-child relationship so that the parent doesn't have to be with them all the time, right? However, within our relationship with God, we have a different sort of dynamic. We have what I want you to write down as an independent dependency. And you're like, oh my gosh, that sounds crazy. Okay, independent. That's what the goal of the parent to child is. Right now though, in this picture, what do you see? You see dependency. And for you and I in our relationship with God, he wants to get us to a place of independent dependency, meaning that God doesn't do it all for us. We have things to do, but there must still be a dependency, a relying on. You see, we must desire, like that child to parent, we must desire, God, would you never leave? 
God, I, I cannot do this alone. And that's a good place to be for the believer. We must say, God, would, would, would your hand on the, on the back seat, in a sense, never go away? And it actually, it becomes our downfall as soon as we think we can ride on our own. As soon as we think we can do that, we will face plant very quickly. And today, uh, within the story of Nehemiah, uh, we're going to see God's good hand with Nehemiah the whole time. We're going to see how God was guiding him and supporting him and how he was moving behind the scenes. That though Nehemiah was doing the praying, doing the doing, and there's these things on the surface that behind the scenes, God has his hand on the back and the seat of Nehemiah the whole time. And so last week, we, right, we kicked off this series in the book of Nehemiah. And remember, it's the tagline of, of God's work, uh, God's way. God's work, God's way. And that's the tagline of our series. And we saw how Nehemiah was just this ordinary person in this unordinary position, and he was going to be used for extraordinary purposes. And we saw last week how uh, we saw that, that specific period and place which Nehemiah lived. Uh, we saw that problem that Nehemiah heard, and we saw how this broke him. This burdened him so much to the point that he went to prayer, and he did this uh, for a good amount of time. Now, last week, we, we saw that Nehemiah had this work that God was going to do through him. But first, he had to do this work in him. He needed this preparation of prayer. And, and so it happens for us, as you and I, as we seek to do God's work God's way. Well, now we're going to get into chapter 2, which is going to be the culmination of those prayers. We're going to see how God was preparing the way for Nehemiah and setting up everything for him to walk in as he spent time in prayer. So let's pick it up where we left off, Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. All right, you guys there? All right, look in your Bibles, look at verse 1 with me. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you would send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And verse 8, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. 
And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Let's pray. Father, we pray now as we seek you in your word that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would shape us, that you would mold us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. All right. Awesome portion of scripture. So much there. And uh, we're just going to kind of go through it verse by verse. All right. So the first thing I want you to note down is Nehemiah's response. We, we find in the first three verses here, we see in Nehemiah's response. If you notice in verse one, in verse one, uh, it, it talks about uh, this time, it says the month of Nisan, and no, not like the car dealer, all right, uh, the car maker. Uh, remember, we kind of like what we talked last week about, uh, about, there was that month of Chislev, which was between November and December. The month of Nisan is according to the Babylonian Persian calendar, and it is the month uh, between March and April. Translation, four months Later, between chapter one and chapter two, there is a four-month gap that is not recorded for us. You know how sometimes movies will start and there'll be this dramatic, uh, crazy scene and then it'll get really calm and there'll be a slide like this and it'll be like four months later, right? And then it opens up with a brand new scene. That's kind of like what's happening here, where chapter one is like this, oh my gosh, okay, this happened. And now four months later, right? There's this time period, or if you watch SpongeBob, you'll also be familiar with this. But right, four months later, that's what's being said here, that there are four months that pass. And we left off in chapter one, and we gained insight into Nehemiah's position and prayer. And four months later, where do we find him? In the same exact spot, right, right where we left him in chapter one, in the same position with the same prayer. He was waiting on the Lord. Have you guys ever heard that term before? Waiting on the Lord. Oftentimes it is talked about and never actually described or expressed. He was waiting on the Lord. That didn't mean that he stopped everything and he just went in his room and he just prayed. He became a monk for four months. No, actually nothing changed. He was in the same position, going to work every day as the king's cupbearer, and he kept on praying. What it means to wait on the Lord is that he didn't make these rash and quick decisions, that he simply kept doing what he knew he was supposed to be doing. Notice in verse one, though, we get some insight. He says, I had never been sad in the presence of the king before. Now, similar to what we talked about last week, kings at this time were pretty powerful and usually a bit nuts. They had unrestrained power. And we saw this in the story of Esther, right? That's why the story of Esther was such a big deal was she wasn't sure if when she went in to request of the king, what kind of mood the king was going to be in. They had power to kill people for whatever reason they wanted to, and no one would bat an eye. They were above the law because they were the law. People treaded lightly around the king. Uh, so much so if you even looked sad, that, that they protected the king from any bad stuff. So if someone went into his presence and they looked a little gloomy that day, he could just be like, all right, lion's den, done. 
it, it, it was that type of atmosphere. And so that's why this is as big of a deal as it was. Because what Nehemiah was experiencing internally began showing externally. Right? He, he, he was broken from what he heard. He had gone through now four months of nothing changing. His prayer is the same. And he is burdened for the people and the place of Jerusalem. And it didn't show, though, interesting, for four months. For four months, he was able to keep it internally. But the king describes it perfectly when he says in verse 2, notice in your Bibles, that it was sorrow of heart. You see, for Nehemiah, this was bigger than a moment of sadness. It was a season of brokenness. It wasn't just like he, he heard, heard about something. He was like, oh, man, that's a bummer. And then the next day, it was different. It wasn't this moment of sadness. And we all experience that. Right? You could be driving past someone uh, who's homeless and you have this moment of, oh man, like, they don't have anywhere to sleep tonight. But then maybe the next day you, you completely, it, it, right? it doesn't turn into this season of brokenness. But for some people, they do. Some people see, maybe will see a, a homeless man be broken because of that and then eventually begin to be involved in homeless ministry to, to meet their needs, both physically and spiritually. And for Nehemiah, it wasn't just this moment, it was a season. And this burden that Nehemiah experienced began to increase to the point that he wasn't able to hide it. You know, some people are able to hide what they feel. And then maybe you know someone, and maybe it's you, that you can't hide the way that you feel. Right? It's just you wear your heart on your sleeve. Everything you feel is all over your face. Right? You are the opposite of a poker player. You're the opposite of a Russian. Okay? Russians, they, 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 they can show no emotion often. You, you want to see a Russian smile? You're seeing it right now. This is how Russians smile. No, no, for, for, right? There's some people that just, they, they can just go without showing any emotion. Well, for Nehemiah, uh, over this period of time, what was happening, happening internally began to show externally. And notice what ki the king asked Nehemiah. He asked him, what, why was he sad? And notice, Nehemiah then became dreadfully afraid. And he was afraid because he's like, oh no, like the king noticed. Is, is there going to be a trap door? Is there going to be, am I going to get thrown in the lion's den? Right? He was, he was afraid because of the unstableness and unrestricted power of the kings at that time. But Look at verse 3. Look at his response in verse 3. He says, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? You see, in Nehemiah's response, I want you to note this down, there is both wisdom and honesty. We find in his response in verse 3, we find wisdom and honesty. He says, he, he doesn't just respond right away. He says, May the king live forever. Nehemiah was wise in how he responded. He didn't just say, king, like, what do you expect? Like, my people and the place that my ancestors grew up in is, is laid waste. No, he does this wise. He says, first, he says, may the king live forever. I don't think this was just like a kiss-up statement. It seemed like he did have this loyalty to the king, but it was wise. You see, Nehemiah knew who he was in front of. He knew who he was talking to. And so we responded in wisdom. And he basically then responds to the king of like, how could I not be sad? Look, like the, my, my people and the history of my, of my people are, are in ruins. There's an interesting quote by Dale Carnegie, who's an author. 
He says this, if you want to gather honey, don't kick over the beehive. Did you guys hear that? If you, if you want to gather honey, the way not to do it is to, is to kick over the beehive. And you see, Nehemiah was not kicking over the beehive. He was strategically and wisely reaching his hand in to gather the honey. You see, his response was wise. It was honest. It wasn't deceitful, but it was wise. It was smart. It was smart that he, he had the tagline, uh, may the king live forever, and then he began to express himself. Notice that Nehemiah, look at verse 3, he didn't use the name of Jerusalem. See, at this time, the, the city of Jerusalem would have had a bad reputation of rebellion against kings. And he just, he, he says Judah. He doesn't say Jerusalem. His response was wise. And there's, there's I think, some lessons there uh, for us to learn from. That we need to know who we're talking to. And we need to be wise in the way that we say things, right? Even Jesus said, be wise as serpents as I send you out, but harmless as dove wise, but honest. And we'll get into more of that in a moment. Secondly, though, we see Nehemiah's request. So we see his response, uh, and he is wise and honest. But secondly, in verses four through eight, uh, we see his request. Notice in verse four, it says, then the king said to him, so he's waiting for his response, right? Oh man, what's the king going to do? And so the king responds, and he responds really well. He responds rather with a simple question. Look at verse 4. He says, what do you request? You see, the king's response was not the trap door. It was not the lion's den. It was a question, and it was Nehemiah's opportunity. That's what I want you to write down. This question was Nehemiah's opportunity. This, this moment was the culmination of what Nehemiah had been praying for for four months. Remember, look back at verse, chap uh, verse 11, chapter 1. So you're in chapter 2, so just look to the very last verse. You'll see in his prayer, he says, Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man? The king. And now, okay, he's been praying, God, grant me mercy in his sight in verse 11. Now in chapter 2, verse 4, is the moment. The king just asked him, who's the most powerful man on the planet, what do you want? You have three wishes. No, but what is your request? You see, this was Nehemiah's moment. It was his opportunity, and it was his moment, and he knew it. Now, we need to keep in mind, though, that nothing happened for four months. You might want to note that down. Nothing happened for four months. And this is often how God works. He puts something on our heart and then makes us wait for his timing. You see this in the Bible. You see this when David is anointed king by Samuel, and it wasn't until years later that he would assume the position of king. You see this with Joseph as a teenager, and he would have these dreams that people would be bowing down to him that he'd be in this place of leadership and authority. And that did not happen for 13 years. He went through prisons. He went through pits. He went through being a slave. See, this is how God creates in you and I this independent dependency is he makes us wait. 
It doesn't mean that we're not doing anything, but it means that we don't do things rashly, that we don't do things quickly. We wait for his timing. You see, to wait on the Lord doesn't mean to do nothing. It means to continue in what you were doing, but waiting for him to move. You see, what I want you to note down today is that God's timing is always the best timing. Because think about this. If Nehemiah just had decided to do something on his own, run away from the palace, run away from the king, because God was taking too long, he would have missed out on what we're about to read, which is God's provision and blessing that God was working behind the scenes. But Nehemiah, in those four months, he wouldn't have seen that. He would have just been praying. He would have been showing up to work and he would have been praying and working, praying and working. And there's no doubt a temptation in Nehemiah's heart of like, God, you put this on my heart. I see what's going on. Use me. Let's go. Let's get on a plane. Let's head to Jerusalem. Let's do this thing. Let's get the cavalry. What are we waiting for? And sometimes in life, we can experience that. What, what are we waiting for? And sometimes there's not an answer. Until there is, until God opens the door. Notice though, right? He says, what do you request? Look back at verse four. But then notice what this next sentence is. And it says, so I, right? Nehemiah is the author. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah tells us that in this moment that he hears this question that he's been waiting for, praying for, that he hears the question and before he answers, he prays. But what does this look like? What, what was this like? Did he get down on his knees in front of the king and start praying? Did he pray this long prayer? No, it was a quick prayer. It wasn't a phone call, it was a text. This right here in verse four, what I want you to note down is an emergency prayer. It's an emergency prayer. It was that text, it was that quick, it was that, uh, what was it like? We don't know what was said. But don't forget that this short prayer would have been very short. Like, it would have been so short that the king asks and he responds. Like, he wasn't going to make it, like, awkward where he's like, Nehemiah, like, did you, did you hear what I said? No. This would have been such a short prayer that it wouldn't have even interrupted the conversation that is happening. But what we need to remember is that this prayer in verse 4 that is super short, text prayer, emergency prayer, SOS, is based upon the four months of continual prayer. You see, this concise prayer was based on four months of consistent prayer. Don't think that this was the only time. No, this short prayer, which is a good example for you and I in the moment, in the opportunity, was the culmination of that constant and consistent pr prayer. It seems like Nehemiah lived in this type of awareness of the presence of God, where in this moment that he knows, he sends up this quick prayer. What did he say? We don't know. It wasn't recorded. Was it just a God help? Uh, was it, uh, God, give me the words? It was silent. It wouldn't, it, imagine if he said it out loud. That'd be weird. The king would be like, what'd you say? Oh, oh nothing. No, this was in his heart. This was in his head. Even Jesus said that someone isn't heard because of their many words. Because it was, a, it was a short prayer, did it mean less? No, I think it meant a lot. First Thessalonians tells us that we are to pray without ceasing. And that seems to be what Nehemiah was doing here. 
It wasn't a cop-out, right? Some people can say, well, I'm just always, I'm just in an attitude of prayer, right? My whole life is prayer. I don't, I don't need to take that. I don't need to go to the prayer meeting. My life is prayer. It's like, no, this, it's not a cop-out to not have intentional times of prayer. But remember, what we talked about last week, a, prayerf- a prayerful person is a dependent person, which means a prayerless person is an independent person. And normally, right, your parents are trying to instill in you independence. Do it on your own. Okay, I'm going to let my hand off. But you see, for God, no, he's trying to create in us a dependence. To be independent from the Lord is a scary place to be. And a prayerful person is a dependent person. He didn't need to go to church in that moment. He didn't need to get on his hands and knees and pray. He didn't need to close his eyes. This came out of that season of prayer. And so let's, let's see his request. What does he respond? Okay, the king says, what do you want? He prays in that moment. Now look at verse five. And he says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, wisdom, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Notice that first line. Similar to what we saw in his response, his request is no different. He requested in a respectful manner. He wasn't like, uh, you know, he didn't get right to the point that, that he, he padded it with some wisdom. Colossians 4, 6, you can note it down, says this, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Have you ever had something before that was supposed to have salt and didn't? It's usually not very good. Imagine, you know, eating eggs without salt. It just, it doesn't, it's just not right potatoes without salt. Salt gives it flavor and seasoning. You know, even sweet stuff, if it's, if it's um, made well and right, it usually has a little bit of salt. Like if you make cake, you, there's usually a little bit of salt in the recipe. The best cookies usually have a little bit of salt because salt isn't about flavor of itself. It, in, it is a flavor enhancer. And you see what we see Nehemiah do is that he puts some, he makes it taste good. He, he, makes, it, he makes it presentable in a way he makes the truth, he's honest, he's not deceptive, but he makes it taste good. And this is something that we can learn from. Sometimes as Christians, we can just say the truth and there's no salt to it. It doesn't taste good. You're like, well, I shared the gospel with them. They, they heard the truth. Yeah, but it sounded terrible. Right? It, it, and, and not that we're supposed to water it down or sugarcoat it. We shouldn't, we shouldn't sugarcoat the gospel. We should salt coat it. All right? we, we, should, we should have it taste good. We should have it taste, uh, 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 appeal, like there should be some persuasion in that. And we see Nehemiah, it, it was rather that way. And his request was straightforward. He says, send me. And so the, the king and the queen in, in verse six, they ask, well, h- how long are you gonna be? And we see here that they give him a green light. Notice verse six, right? He, he kind of brings in the queen on it a little bit and it seems like they're, they're talking and it says at the end of verse six, so please the king to send me and I set him a time. So we got a green light. He said, how long? The text doesn't record for us exactly how long uh, Nehemiah said to him, but notice at the end of verse six that it says that Nehemiah gave him a definite time. He gave him something specific, meaning that Nehemiah had pre-planned and pre-thought out what he was going to do. Nehemiah 13.6, it's the last chapter in the book. Uh, we get some insight to how long 
he uh, was there in Jerusalem doing things before he went back. In Nehemiah 13, 6, it says, But during this I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, Persia, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained leave from the king. And so within this deal, Nehemiah isn't saying that he's leaving forever, but he is leaving for a time. And we know that that's 12 years. How do we know that? Because... Look at verse 1. It's the 20th year of the king. He goes back in chapter 13 in the 32nd year of the king. You're like, what's the point of this, Joel? I want you to understand that he wasn't winging it. You know what it means to wing it? It means to not study for a test and act like you're going to do good. Now, some of you have that ability. But to wing it is be like, okay, I think, I think I'm good. I didn't study at all, not one word, but I think I'm going to be good. Right? You're probably going to fail. Uh, but for Nehemiah, he wasn't, gonna, he wasn't winging it. This was something that was pre-planned and pre-thought out that he said, most likely, he said 12 years or he, he set some definite time and I don't think he just pulled it out of nowhere. What the text indicates and what we're gonna see in the rest of the remaining verses is that he had some thoughts, meaning that as he was praying, he was preparing. As he was planning, uh, as he was praying, he was planning. He was praying and preparing. Chuck Swindoll says this, the presence of faith does not mean an absence of organization. Don't ever let someone tell you that faith is separated from preparation. It's not. They go hand in hand. That yes, we're to walk by faith and not by sight, but that doesn't mean we sit on our hands and just say, well, I'm trusting God. Oh, how are you, how are you gonna support you and your future wife? Oh, we're just trusting the Lord. It's like, you better get a job, right? Oh, I wanna go, I wanna go to Africa and I want to start this orphanage. Okay, where's your funding? Do you have any plan? Oh no, I'm just gonna fly there. I'm gonna get off the plane and I'm just gonna be led by the Lord. Now, there are certain circumstances where the Holy Spirit leads, but often what you need to understand about your own faith relationship with God, it doesn't mean that you can have the excuse of, oh, I'm, we're going to figure it out. There are things that you trust the Lord with of, okay, I don't, like Nehemiah, right? He didn't know the timing. God, I don't know this timing, but during those four months, what is indicated here is that he was not just praying, he was planning, uh, there is a saying that, that went around during the Revolutionary War. Uh, and oftentimes these soldiers in the Revolutionary War, they would say, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. You guys hear me? Trust in God, but keep your powder dry. Their powder would, would be their, the part of their ammunition, right? The, the whole idea is that they were gonna trust in the Lord, but that doesn't mean they weren't going to carry a gun, right? No one goes into war and just is like, oh, God's, God's going to protect me. Uh, I'm just going to run past the bullets and tackle the guy. It's like, no, you should probably keep, right? There's this balance. Does that make sense? And in our walk with God, as we seek to serve him, there is this balance. And so we see that he not only prayed, but he planned. And notice though, in verse seven and eight, the request doesn't stop there. His first request was to send me and now his request is to give me. He gets a little bold. And you can easily read past this, but I want to point your attention back to verse 7 and 8. 
Notice, he says, furthermore, I said to the king, he says, if it pleases the king, he already got the green light. He says, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter, he also want, he wants two letters, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber. He asked the king, king, would you give me letters for passage and letters for materials? He prayed and he planned allowing God to guide his steps. Proverbs 16, 9 says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. Notice in those couple verses how specific he gets. He doesn't just pull this out of nowhere. He says, hey, like there might be some people along the way that don't really like what we're doing. Do you think you could write us a letter, like in a sense, a doctor's note, right? A king's note that we could hand to the governors and them to say, okay, yeah, you can pass. He, he doesn't just get specific about that, but he even says, notice, he says by name, he says, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, meaning he, know, he knew who was the keeper of the king's force. He even knew his name. And he asked for a letter. Hey, can we get some resources? Because he knows, okay, he's got a green light, but how's he going to get there? Uh, and when he gets there, what is he going to do? You see, Nehemiah prepared for the moment he prayed for. He knew names, he knew locations, he knew what he needed. To me, in his request, this shows a detailed plan that he knew, he knew before that moment an opportunity came, he knew what it would take. Did he know all the details? No, but he knew some. He planned and he allowed God to direct his steps. Does this make sense? Listen, if you can just get this in your heart today, as you seek the Lord for what God wants to do in your life, this is pivotal. This is of utmost importance. That, that you have this diligence of your heart planning. Okay, I'm going to do this. Okay, God, what, I, don't, I don't know what this looks like, but I'm going I'm to make sure I know about what this is. Whether that's uh, going to college, whether that's uh, going, uh, getting a career, whether that is something related to specific with ministry, something that God's going to do in and through you that there is the balance. Does that make sense? It's awesome. Nehemiah got the, the thumbs up. And so finally, as we begin to come to a close, at the end of verse eight, we see Nehemiah's recognition. He recognized something. And this is the key verse in these eight verses and probably one of the key verses in this whole book. It says, and the king granted them to me according to, to the good hand of my God upon me. The king said yes. Not just to let Nehemiah take this long leave of absence, but now Nehemiah has the king's approval to not only leave, but he has a guarantee of safe travel and he has an abundant amount of resources to build the wall. And think about this. Now the work of God is being funded by a pagan nation. That God so worked it out. And in his planning and, and Nehemiah's preparing and in and what God was doing behind the scenes, that is being funded by a pagan nation. And Nehemiah recognizes, he says, the king did this. Look, look at verse 8, the end of it. It says, but the king granted the request, but it was according 
It was that the Lord who had influence. And this is what he recognized. Proverbs 21.1 says the king's heart, meaning a king as in a leader uh, of a nation, is, the, is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. See, Nehemiah could have, could have had two, two responses. He could have said, wow, like this is, this is awesome. The king, the king said, yes. Wow, I must, have did a really, I must have been really convincing. Or he could have had the response that he did in this recognition of, God, you did this. It was according to your good hand that this whole thing happened. It was according to the good hand. Notice the personalness of it. He says, my God upon me. This was personal. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Have you, ever, have you guys ever heard the, the saying where God guides, God provides? It's a good one because it's true. It's accurate. It's biblical. That this is where God was guiding Nehemiah. And I'm sure there was those times in those four months that Nehemiah had the thought of, what, what in the world is this? How is this ever going to work? I'm here hundreds of miles away from where I want to be. And even, let's say I even get to Jerusalem. How am I going to get there? People are going to stop me along the way. And then when I get there, how am I going to build this thing? Okay, I'm in Jerusalem. And there was already people there. You see, but he waited. He planned. He prepared. Hudson Taylor says this, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. He is too wise a God to frustrate his purposes for lack of funds. God is capable. God is able. But will we, will we trust him? Will we lean on his plan and his timing? You see, he recognized that it wasn't because of his, his careful planning that, that was attributed to his success. He knew it was because of God's provision. But for me, I just love how God kind of goes above and beyond here, you know? Doesn't it seem like that? God just goes above him. It's not enough just for him to be sent, but now he's going uh, with, uh, with the permission of the king to, to let them through and all the materials that they could possibly need. Ephesians 3 says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Immeasurably more. And listen, everyone look at me. As you seek the Lord and as you seek to, to do God's work, God's way, and you're like, God, I just want to be used by you. You are going to experience his exceeding abundant grace it'll be overwhelming at times of how good God is. And I don't say this, remember, these promises, some people, false teachers, people that don't understand the whole context of the Bible will take this and be like, look, I should be healthy, wealthy, and, I should, and everything will be rainbows and roses in my life. He's gonna do exceedingly abundantly. Remember, these types of promises and the example that we're seeing here in chapter two is not for personal pleasures. Nehemiah wasn't seeking to build himself a kingdom. He was even going to come back to serve the king. 
It's for God's purposes, not our personal pleasures. And we must remember that. But as we seek to be a part of God's plan, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do more than you could possibly imagine. And as I said before, there was a temptation for Nehemiah to try to do it on his own. He could have gone on his own and God would have let him. Like, let's say if a month and he got tired of the planning, he got tired of the praying. So he's just like, I'm just going to go and, and see what happens. I'm just going to trust in the Lord and see what happens. And he could, have, he could have done it. He could have jumped the gun, but he would not have had the backing of the king himself. See, God knows what he's doing. And so sometimes we can jump the gun and miss out on the opportunity and blessing that God wanted to give. And so as we close, do you guys see God's good hand in this whole story? I hope you do. You see where you're like, oh my gosh, like uh, us, we have an overview, right? But Nehemiah lived it. And you and I can now see, oh yeah, of course, like God was doing it the whole time. Yeah, it's easy to look back and say that it's another thing to be in the midst of it. It's interesting, many scholars and historians believe that King Artaxerxes, this king that Nehemiah is dealing with, he would have been Esther's son-in-law. Did you guys hear me? So he would not have been, Esther was the queen, right? And the queen of who would have been Artaxerxes' dad, who was Xerxes, okay? Just drop the art. And many believe that there would have been familiar, King Artaxerxes, who Nehemiah is dealing with, would have known who Esther was and would have been very familiar growing up with the story of how Esther stood in the place of the Jews and, and saved them from evil Haman. See, I believe that Artaxerxes would have been very familiar about the Jewish people. Would this be the hand of God even before Nehemiah showed up on the scene years earlier, preparing the heart of this pagan king, creating a softness in his heart towards the people? I don't know. Do you think when Nehemiah took the job of the king's cupbearer, do you think he thought, oh man, God's going to use me in big ways? No, I'm sure he didn't. He just thought, oh, this is a good opportunity. And so he, he, he put in one foot after the other. And yet it would be that very position that God would use for his glory. So what's the, what's the point of all this? It's the fact that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible describes for us that we are his workmanship. And that, notice, it is God who prepares beforehand. He goes before us. Have you guys ever heard that? God goes before you. He really does. He goes before you and there is a path laid out and I believe it is access. It is followed through as you pray and you plan and God will put you exactly where he wants you. And that is awesome. And then you will be able to look back and see that it was God's good hand the whole time, that his hand never left the back of the seat. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your word and Amazing to think that you were working, working this whole time. And Lord, we can look at our own lives and we can look back and see your good hand. Lord, I know I can. I can think back to when I was in high school 
and in junior high and, and you were working and you were preparing and, and you were doing that. And Lord, I can remember the times of discouragement thinking, when are things going to happen? Lord, but I can look back and see your good hand. Lord, I, I pray that for these students as they seek you, Lord, that they will experience the leading of God in their life. That you would continue to, to put on their heart what you want for them and then they just walk. And it just might look like showing up and giving it their all. But as you begin to lead them and guide them, would you put in them that, that plan in their own heart? Would they learn what it means to walk by faith and not by sight? Lord, we submit ourselves to you. And Lord, we want to be used by you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. amen.